a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 87 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like a self-exiled old hermit watching over a little boy on a desert world, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. You know, when you say it like that, it kind of makes it sound like Ben was a pedophile. <laughs> Use the force, son. Use what, the force. What would be the Jedi code for Nambla? Nah, nah, <laughs> that's just, that's way over the top. My bad. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, we're recording for the first time in a few weeks here, though, of course, you haven't missed any episodes because we tend to record things ahead of time enough that we can fill in any gaps for us. But the school year has begun the torrent of crap that usually comes with the school year has begun our our car work and some medical bills without insurance and such that are all kind of piling up on us so uh hey if there was ever a time to go to that amazon store and buy some stuff uh now is the time because yeah we're just being pounded on um it's it's also been and i would say that this is something that i know the, the audience probably doesn't know a whole lot about but um I would also just kind of put an acknowledgement out there, as many do when someone passes, um, for a young man named DeAndre Terman. He's a foot, or was, I guess, uh, he was a football player at the high school where I teach, and I had him in my world history class last year. Nice kid, sweet kid, uh, one of those kids where, you know, if, if the worst thing you can say about someone is that their penmanship needs a little work, then, you know, you're dealing with a good kid. Um, already had offers from, colleges uh, by the end of his sophomore year for football, but we had our scrimmage against another high school. Uh, now it's, I guess, a week ago at this point. Um, and he just made a regular routine, no frills kind of tackle and somehow managed to break his neck. Um, so he died that weekend. Um, they just had the funeral yeah. yesterday as of right now. And it's it's something that's got a lot of attention around this area, but I'm not sure how much nationally. I'm sure it'll re-spark the whole debate about, you know, youth football and, you know, football safety, which seems to come up constantly. But um, if ever there was a time to say one is recording in memory of someone, then certainly um, uh, DeAndre has been in our thoughts uh, quite a bit recently here. So speaking as a teacher, it's been a, a bit of a rough time recently, but... Uh, I'm looking forward to getting my mind off of that stuff and finally getting back to some good Star Wars discussion here, especially given the fact that the book we're talking about this time is a really good one, as opposed to one that I will be shaking my head at most of the time. <laughs> that's right. Now, aside from that somber bit of news Nathan had, you know, that's that's always terrible when a teen and youth ends up going the way of uh, leaving this Earth sooner than they should because, you know... Youth needs to uh, experience life, so when when they get theirs cut short, that it really, really hurts the elderly. You know, I mean, those that have been around long enough to know the potential that that person's had, and it's it just sad when you know these groups then use those situations, like what you said with the football gear and stuff, you know, to further their own goals. It's like I, I hope that doesn't become the case. You know, the, just let the family mourn. That's sad. Did you just call me elderly? <laughs> well, I was trying to be nice to both of us but yeah well i mean you know you have no kids i've got three so it's 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 hard not to feel a little elderly sometimes i mean granted i, I go around like my coworkers and stuff and they're all like you're 25 right and i'm like oh god bless you <laughs> when 900 years old you reach look as good you will not I, i'm beginning to think star wars is the key to the youth for the geek you know i mean like the, the more i'm invested in star wars the younger people just naturally think i am they're like oh I couldn't even possibly more than 23. I'm like, really? 
oh, no, 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 I, I think it's the other way around. It can be the other way around. The realization that as I'm going through and doing the From the Star Wars home video library video series, it did recently finally start on YouTube, um, I'm going through and realizing that when I get ready to talk about the, the special editions, it's now for its 20th anniversary. And when I'm talking about the first time you could get the entire trilogy, albeit in separate um, uh, purchases as opposed to a box set, uh, that they had a 10th anniversary advertisement on it, only to realize that we are fast approaching its 40th anniversary. That makes me feel old. Also, when I <laughs> when I have to remind people my age or older when they say, hey, that Ahsoka, she's kind of hot that she's, you know, 14 when we meet her and probably only about 16 or so afterwards, then usually they are very chagrined and are like, oh, I mean, it's a cool design. It's like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. You're like Ben looking after Luke, aren't you? <laughs> That's about right. Uh, well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Film, we ask those tough questions, those questions that have bothered you a long time or the simple ones that perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. That's the point. This episode, we are going to ponder and explore John Jackson Miller's Star Wars Kenobi. Now, uh, this is John's uh, third foray into the full-length novels. I mean, I'm counting his Lost Tribe of the Sith here, as well as Night Errant. Uh, but this has been a, a fun ride. Now, consider this your early spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages. Don't worry, we'll fire off one more final warning before we head into the deep spoiler zone, because here we go. And just for a chronological reference here, um, one of the cool things about this book is that it had to fit in with other material, especially the life and legend of Obi-Wan Kenobi by Ryder Wyndham. And there's some question, of course, as to how well you can fit something new into a continuity or into a character's biography that is already fairly chock full. And one of the things that I was very impressed by is that John Jackson Miller had pinned down specifically exactly where this story and where Incognito, the short story from Insider that ties into it vaguely, uh, when those stories take place in relation to life and legend. So if you have life and legend of Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Kenobi novel takes place in the gap between the two sections, uh, one that is ending and one that is beginning, on page 110 in Life and Legend. And then the Incognito story, which takes place while he's on his way to Tatooine, takes place within, I believe it is within the gap between two sections on page 103. It's either 100 or 103. I forget off the top of my head which one of those two he confirmed. I'd have to go back and look. Um, I believe 103, though. So... There's definitely been an effort to put these in a chronological order with stuff we've seen before, as opposed to just saying, well, it'll fit somewhere the way that they've been doing with, for instance, you know, the uh, the Star Wars Volume 2 and the way that it seems that they're doing with Razor's Edge. But I guess we can't talk about that yet. Um, so... Anyway. Ah, oh, continuity. Who cares? Let's yeah. take the Star Trek approach. Uh, and I will say that there was one chronological error that we ran into in Kenobi uh, that I ran into while reading it, referring to the events of Outlander, the comic series, as being 14 years earlier, which wouldn't have made sense. And I brought that up to John Jackson Miller, and whether he uh, passed that along for me or whether somebody else caught the exact same reference, it is fixed in the final version, which I think is cool. And this is a... For something that is not heavily connected to other continuity in a lot of ways, um, there are a few things that connect, but it's not like it's one huge thing where if you miss it, you'll not understand continuity around this point. Uh, for a book like that, there are a huge number of chronological references in it, usually around the lives of the settlers that we meet. My advanced copy of this thing is sitting here with post-it notes on each page that has a chronological reference I need to go back to for the Star Wars Timeline Gold. And, I mean, it is absolutely full. There's probably a good 40 post-it notes stuck inside this book. It looks like a mohawk sticking out of the top of it at this point. So uh, <laughs> this is a good one for those who are just interested in what happens to Obi-Wan once he first gets to Tatooine. Uh, what kind of, of struggles does he go through and what type of mindset is he in? But for one who wants to see how things connect together and wants to see um, something that is uh, cognizant of chronology and continuity and yet at the same time isn't turning around and bashing you over the head with it quite as much as, say, something like Darth Plagueis, um, this is definitely a good read to check out in this era. 
Now, you mentioned something that, that I was going to bring up. Uh, my good friend William Devereaux from We Talk Clones and EU Cast had mentioned that this book was like the light side to the dark side that was Darth Plagueis. That everything Darth Plagueis provided, this took a more Jedi-oriented view and did the similar with, where it kind of fleshed out certain backstories. I, I have to agree with, with that sentiment. I mean, I was impressed with the fact that Kenobi was themed as a Western. At least that's how it felt to me when I was reading it. Uh, it definitely had a very old uh, serialized Western vibe to it. Uh, you know, we had scenes like a, a, the, the stagecoach chase, you know, things like that. You had the uh, cowboy and Indian fights going on with the Tuscan Raiders and the Settlers. Uh, all that back and forth stuff. Um, Kenobi kind of had the role of like a medicine man slash, uh, you know, maverick style character. Um, but John Jackson Miller, you know, he, he's always done a good job of taking those subtle references and tying them in. You know, I've been a big fan of John's for a while now. Our next episode, we're going to focus on Outlander, which is the Dark Horse comics uh, comic that deals with a lot of characters and stuff that are mentioned in this. So, so. I found it funny because I finished Kenobi and then I went back to read the Outlander and I was like, man, I should have done this backwards. So if you haven't got Kenobi yet and you have Outlander sitting around or you have access to Star Wars Republic Outlander. I don't know why I'm using Republic. It was the first Star Wars ongoing line after all. But Star Wars Outlander, uh, it tells the tale of Sherrod Hett. Uh, kind of like the origin story of Asherard Het and Kayata Mundi going on to Tatooine and doing their little adventure. But it's mentioned quite often because the sand people that we will be following in Kenobi tie into that story. And so for me, it gave this whole added depth to the book because I was remembering those situations and stuff that they were mentioning. And, I, you know, like. John didn't even have to fill in the gaps. He just mentioned it, and my brain was just clicking all those little gifts. Oh, and then, oh, and oh, yeah. You know, I, that's what I love about when John Jackson Miller does this kind of stuff, because he does it in a way where, you know, you, you said your book's, you know, dog-eared to the nine hells of Corellia. Mine, well, okay, yours has is, is got a mohawk. Mine's dog-eared to the nine hells, but I was missing out on all those little character references. Granted, I did pick up on the big ones with Sherrard Het, but, I mean, what were some of the other ones that came out that, that, that just, you know, right away jump out to you that, that I may have missed. Well, it wasn't so much continuity connections so much as it was chronological. Like, we we slowly learned the background of uh, Annaline's family, for instance. And there's a lot of references to, you know, when she was this age and when she first came to Tatooine and then she met him then and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's more of a – you really get a sense that this family, these characters have a history by comparison. I'm in the process right now of reading Razor's Edge, the the advanced copy of Razor's Edge, the Leia-focused Empire and Rebellion story. And those characters have pretty much no feeling of having much of a history beyond just the basic elements of their origin story. Uh, I am almost done with that book. It's about 250 pages long. I have about 50 pages to go. And you know how many uh, post-its I've had to put in there for chronological or continuity references in Razor's Edge? Zero. Whoa. The only chronology reference in the entire thing so far has been how many years it is after A New Hope. That is it. So it sort of is one of these things where uh, you you get a feeling for the characters based on the way they're described and the basics of the origins that they give you. That happens in any book. In this particular book, because we – I mean, the, the vast majority of characters that we focus on in this book are not Obi-Wan. Uh, they're not characters we've met before. It's these locals – on Tatooine. Rather than giving us sort of a, a very basic baseline characterization for each one, we are given enough background bits about their youth, about earlier, about a few years before, about a few decades before, whatever, that it feels as though these are characters who have a true history, and by the time the book is over, you've really grown to like and care for these characters, even though they are characters who, A, you've never met before, and B, in the grand scheme of things, are basically throwaway characters. Their impact on the overall continuity is negligible at best, but you care about them because that history has been built around them so that they're not just what they are at the moment. You understand that there has been some growth of these characters, you know, essentially outside of this particular storyline. And that works very well. That hints so many dog ears there. That's what most of them are about. Almost none of them have to do with connecting to something far beyond this book itself. 
Oh, okay. Well, I mean, for me, like I said, the, the Western theme of it really, really sat well with me. I know that, you know, we've seen other books that they've kind of tried to take a theme and I, I didn't always enjoy it. Like, I didn't really care for Scoundrels. It didn't feel Ocean's Eleven enough for me. It was more Italian job, which I still liked Italian job, but I was expecting Oceans. And just because there was 11 of them, that doesn't quite count. And because they're doing a caper. That wasn't enough for me, but this one, this one really rocked. I mean, I really enjoyed the the aspect, the setting. Tatooine seems like a very uh, logical place to do a western type story. I mean, you know, you've got the settlers are kind of living out in the wild west on the fringes of the desert. They're trying to gather as much moisture as they can. You've got the the back and forth between the uh, sand people and stuff. Which again, getting back to Outlander, if you followed that plot you kind of understand why the settlers and why the tuscans are kind of doing their back and forth the raids that Jabba the Hutt had started back in that other comic um so you got that aspect plus Jabba's people and stuff the henchmen and stuff like that so there was all these different elements that had the classic Star Wars feel but at the same time like I almost felt like I was reading one of those old classic uh western books you know I mean like like I said, when they, they had the scene where uh, I believe they're on a runaway bantha or runaway dewback or something like that, and, and and Kenobi shows up to save the day. I really felt like it was the stagecoach scene, you know, like the the driver had been killed, the stagecoach is running off the hill, and you know the character is in the back, and and the moms tried to get on the coach, and now they're both on the coach, and oh my gosh, they're going right for the cliff. What's going to happen? Oh, here comes the hero with the white hat. You know, I mean. There was a lot of those moments in this book. Um, you know, keeping this part spoiler free, I would I would say that this is not necessarily an essential book, but if you are someone who likes the character Obi Wan Kenobi, this is essential for you. Um, it, it's a good read, not one that you have to have though. If you're if you're a bigger EU person and you want to kind of absorb as much of the greater details that's going on, this is a very focused book. It's not really good. I mean, there's no major impact here but if you're somebody who wants to follow a character learn about a character kind of get as much info as you can about a character and ben kenobi is that character for you this is absolutely a book you must have um i again i i can't say enough about john jackson miller the the guy just he's phenomenal at what he does so i really enjoyed the read uh it was definitely a new experience in the aspect of it being western and and the way it just jumped out off the page into my mind i really like that i love seeing the tuscan raiders point of view getting into the different mindsets of the settlers all that stuff when we see kenobi most of the time from his point of view it's it's only meditation which, if I recall correctly, uh, they added that after the fact. That wasn't originally – John wasn't really going to do that at first. And I, I think that was a great addition. Like he's talking to Qui-Gon, but he never actually like has a conversation with Qui-Gon. And we kind of even watched an evolution of the conversations with Qui-Gon because of some of the character interactions throughout the story, which we'll get to as we spoil it more. But it was a fun ride, and, and I believe as we get into the spoilers, you will probably enjoy the ride too. Yeah, I would say that if I were to use the terminology I used early on – with from the Star Wars library until I realized that it was a little bit redundant. Um, is it one that you could skip? Absolutely. Is it one that you should skip? No, I don't think so. I mean, this is a solid story. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And if Obi-Wan is one of the characters you particularly like, especially having now followed the Clone Wars and, of course, the prequel films, seeing him in that era, I think you're going to dig it. It's the beginnings of a transformation of Obi-Wan uh, this, in a storytelling sense, is kind of like what they did with Ewan McGregor, where they took him from the fresh-faced Obi-Wan back in The Phantom Menace, and by the time we get to Revenge of the Sith, they're purposely trying to get him to look more and more like Alec Guinness. In a sense, this is trying to make Obi-Wan, as we knew him before, settle into being more and more like the Alec Guinness version of Obi-Wan that, of course, we meet in A New Hope, and see every once in a while in those little smattering of tales in between. It works as a great transition, albeit not one that covers a lot of time. I mean, this really is just a small chunk of time right after Obi-Wan gets to Tatooine. Do not expect this to be a decade-spanning story or a decades-spanning story like, say, Darth Plagueis was. This is much more of a, how do you go from being a Jedi who feels the need to act all the time to help others and turn into someone who is essentially a hermit because you can't endanger others by your presence and you have a mission beyond the things that you would like to do. You have something that you must do, and in many cases that means you should not act even when action is called for. It's it's an interesting take. Yeah, and, you know, 
like you said, it kind of gives you the idea of why, you know, Ben Kenobi is so different than Obi-Wan. And I, and I like the internal struggle that, that Obi-Wan has with that aspect of it. I mean, like, there's one moment where he's, like, debating, should I, should I even be bringing my lightsaber with me anywhere? <laughs> you know, you're like, I don't know, dude. Kind of not looking like you should. But, uh, th- th- you know, you mentioned the uh, the change of Ewan McGregor, you know, and how – and I love the fact that uh, his uncle, uh, you know, in real life was uh, the guy that played Wedge and Tilly. So he always had that connection with Star Wars. And it went out of his way to, you know, do the voice characteristics of when he drops down and he's uh, looking for Grievous. And, Hello there. There's a moment when he shows up, I believe, to Annaline, and uh, he says that to her. And, and I just – almost most of the Obi-Wan lines – I hear in Ewan McGregor's voice as Alec Guinness. I mean, I just, I love when, when an author captures the character in that regard. I mean, I think for most of you long-term EU fans, I think the character that we look at in that regard the most is probably Han Solo. Uh, you know, it's like, did the, did the author capture Han today? Ben was caught. So was Obi-Wan. I mean, John Jackson Miller did a really good job of presenting both characters and showing us how the two, you know, work, how one became the other. Uh, and, and the struggle and the impact it had on the character himself. I really enjoyed that. So with that all said, consider this your last spoiler warning, because here we go. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now, a lot of this tale, okay, uh, overall, tends to focus much more on the natives, as I mentioned before, as it does on Obi-Wan. And we meet the Caldwells, okay? Um, or Caldwell, I guess there's no D in it. Annaline Caldwell, Callie, her daughter, uh, Jabe, her son. We find that she had lost her husband years ago, very much like, you know, the the Western-style uh, archetype where you have the woman who's lost her husband, is trying to do well on her own, raising the kids, etc., etc. Um, we meet the Galt family, uh, led by Oren Galt, who is basically the leader of, he's sort of the leader of the community. He has been yeah. close with Annaline, close with her family. Their families are almost like their one family, but those two do not have a romantic connection per se. They're not in a relationship or anything like that. He was a close friend of her late husband's, and Oren is basically trying to organize the settlers against the Tusken Raiders, the idea that he needs the so-called Settler's Call. He set up the system, basically, of warning beacons or sensor, not even sensor, like a, a loudspeaker-type things, so that if there is an attack by Tusken Raiders on any of the moisture farms that are part of this collective, then he can just very quickly send out a call across them, and everybody comes running to try to protect each other, very much like, you know, if there was an attack uh, on a settlement back in the Old West, you might have, you know, the call for, you know, bringing everyone from the different farms around to try to protect that one. Uh, in that case, from either animals or from a, a Native American attack or something like that. And you get the sense as you go along that Galt isn't necessarily all that he claims to be, or at least he's someone who has ulterior motives in what he is doing. He's much more caught up in what he needs for himself mm. than he is in everything else, which again is another one of these Western archetypes we tend to see. Uh, I, you find yourself asking throughout the book, you know, when you're looking for his true motivations, you know, who is Oren Galt? Uh, to take a uh, to take a, a play off of Atlas Shrugged here. But it's much yeah. more about them than it is about others. Where Obi-Wan fits, in the, fits into the mix is as... It's funny, he's not in there... He isn't seeing himself in the role that the others are. To Annaline, he is this mysterious stranger and someone she develops feelings for. For Oren, he is a possible threat, who's a mysterious stranger, both a threat to what he's doing in general and to his connection with Annaline. But to yeah. Obi-Wan, his whole point is to try to stay out of this. So it's an interesting thing where the story itself revolves around, for, for lack of a better term, like a basic misunderstanding of who and what Obi-Wan is and what his intentions could be. He's very evasive with her. It's not like he tries to lead her on or anything. He's very clear about his lack of any intentions. But just his presence and the way he acts, simply being kind as a Jedi should to others, puts him in this position where everything revolves around him and yet at the same time nothing 
truly revolves around him in this story. I found that an interesting take that Obi-Wan is almost a secondary character in his own novel here. It's what spurs him to do what he does. Well, that small not... town mentality kind of takes a characteristic of its own in this regard, where, you know, there's there's so few other characters that these characters noticing Obi-Wan are able to kind of, you know, fill in the gaps <laughs> of what he's doing. And so you have that aspect of, you know, the, the community is looking at you, Kenobi, and this is what we've decided. Right. It reminds me actually of Invasion a little bit, because I remember when Invasion first was announced. Uh, everybody's like, oh, crap, here we go. It's a Yuzhan Vong war story, so we're going to get the same old characters again. And yeah, we saw a lot of Luke and the Solo kids and such early on in that story, but it turns out that it really wasn't their story. They were the ones who might propel things along and be encountered from time to time, but the real story was about Finn and the Galfridian family. It's kind of what this is. You know, the, the real story is the Caldwells and the Galts, the not exactly the Hatfields and McCoys. They're not constantly against each other, but there is a connection there that goes back deeper than just this story itself. And Obi-Wan is sort of thrown into their orbits and winds up being the odd man out that, that shuffles things a bit. Well, see, the thing I liked about Oren's character, I mean, as they like to call him at the beginning, the king of the Judlin, he had a, a depth to him, I mean, because it was all internal at the time that, that it went down, where you know everyone's calling him the king of the Judlin, and he is very aware of his position in his little society and not pushing it too far, uh, being humbled and things like that. And, and I was beginning to, you know, I, I liked Oren's character, and I was kind of like, is he going to be, you know, is he going to be a good guy all the way through it or not? Because... You know, you, you definitely picked up that there was a sense like him and, and Annaline were supposed to be together or, or you know, like the community saw them as together. So when they were kind of pushing Obi-Wan into that romance role for her, you're like, oh, this could backfire. You know, and that and that was like, for me, that was like the turning point when I realized, OK, Oren is not going to be a good guy all the way through this. Like something's going to happen here, you know, and, and the way his character progressed worked very well because it, it wasn't something that was just bam right away you knew this guy was gonna be a bad guy it was okay this guy's got some issues he's got an ego uh you know he he's he's enjoying the controlling position he's in but he's humble enough to not let it go to his head or so it would seem but then as as events pushed his character forward you saw desperation start to come forth and then you start getting a little bit more of the backstory of what's going on with him with the huts uh with with the you know all of tatooine with the moisture farm uh with the banks and then you realize that okay he's also he's not just a rancher he's a farmer okay and and they play that out too you know because he's the moisture farmer but now you've got the whole aspect of he's the down on the luck farmer who's in debt with the banks and he's willing to do almost anything to turn his luck around and the desperation that came at the end of the book for him it plays well because i mean it, it, it's it's almost a real life scenario that you can see playing across your face uh you know again getting back to that aspect of the jealousy the jealousy of oren is definitely what made him do some of the more vilification aspects of his role in the book. I mean, you know, there were things where he kind of got jealous and because of that kind of took like a retaliatory action, you know, and, and, and then, you know, throwing, throwing Ben under the bus like he does later in the book was crazy too. But one of the characters that, that really stood out for me aside from Oren was a Uh and, and even a name uh, kind of gives you an, an idea of the Tuscans because you know, there, there's a big reveal of Aark. You know, you, you think Aark's male all the way through the book, and then at one point you find out that, whoa, hey, wait, no, Aark's a female. Uh, and, and when that moment came, I went back through my book because I was like, did they ever, ever call Aark a dude? Because I thought for sure, for sure, that the, that the Tuscan leader, the war tribe leader, was a male. And then when we get to that moment where we find out, no that Aark's son that died was her son that she gave birth to that son. And there was this moment where Annaline and, and her kind of related. And I mean, that was just such a holy Sith moment for me. And then I literally, I stopped reading and I went back and I spent about 10, 15 minutes just looking to see if there was ever a moment where the description was male, because I had firmly thought 
that Aark was going to be male. Uh, but we, we learn, again, John doesn't actually throw it out there, but we learn through the name changes that when Aark was younger, she was like Z-Ark, I, I think. I think there's a Z in front of their names when they're female. And and you find that out that the A stands for the this, the children, and, and it kind of like is the son of kind of thing. Uh, you know, because we see like uh, Sherard Het in, in the Outlander comic, his son is Asherard Het, you know, and uh, a Yark's dad, I believe, was also a Yark, was not a Yark, but was just Yark, I believe. I, I'm not exactly sure there, but there was a lot of really cool little nuances there that was going into the background. And you saw how, you know, a Yark's tribe has been whittled down to almost nothing, which you end up learning were all basically from the events of Outlander, uh, you know, that, that her tribe is that tribe, as well as. The tribe uh, has connections to the tribe that Anakin decimated from episode two. They were also the tribe that went after Shmi and, and tried to bring her in to raise their numbers. So there was all these little aspects of tying into things there on the Tuscan side of things that I really was getting a kick out of. Yeah, I do like the way that Oren's character sort of disintegrates over time in a lot of ways, at least as far as his control tends to disintegrate. Uh, I can't help, anytime I see that, King of the Jundland, I can't help but think, the King in the North, and all that kind of stuff, because the Game of Thrones stuff is stuck in my head. Um, uh, good TV, or great TV series, um, good book series, but once you get to, I think it's book four was the one, um, you're really going to have to fight yourself to try to continue reading it. Um, but he's one of these characters where his fall apart makes sense. Uh, his his process, his character arc makes sense because, as you said, it feels very realistic. But it's also got that Star Wars twist in that one of the people he's trying to get help from, who is someone who would wind up, you know, screwing him over eventually, is, of course, Jabba the Hutt and his minions. So you've got that aspect of it, too. It wouldn't be Tatooine and someone with a debt without the Hutts somehow involved. So they managed to put something that feels very familiar from the standpoint of... Uh, a lot of the, you know, again, as we said, the, the Western stories into a Star Wars context where it feels natural for Star Wars. It doesn't feel like it is shoehorned in. Uh, it's very much like uh, there was a lot of concern about Death Troopers and Red Harvest. You know, can you do zombies and shoehorn that into Star Wars and have that type of feeling fit? Uh, what about sort of a whodunit type of series, which is what, at least to begin with, Coruscant Knights felt like. Uh, this is one of the more smooth transitions between genres I think that we've seen in a while with Star Wars. Uh, as for Ayark, yeah, I found that very interesting. That, you know, they got the big twist of it turns out it's a woman, and we find that this is the tribe that had been wiped out in Outlier. This is the tribe that had been, you know, d devastated and such by Anakin at one point, which to me ties it all together rather nicely because we get this sense that there is uh, this this continuity of this particular Tuscan group, that when we go to Tatooine, we don't just randomly run into groups of Tuscan raiders, as it seems to be the case anytime we see them in the classic trilogy era. That in this case, it happens that the ones that we run into in the same general area tend to be from the same group or splinter groups off the same original group and so forth, um, which I think makes it all fit a little bit more. Plus, of course, it allows for uh, a little bit of speculation on Obi-Wan's part when it comes to, you know, what happened with Anakin and his mother, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it adds to his sense of, I don't want to say failure. He does have a sense of failure. Uh, no, no, I have failed you, Anakin. I have failed you. Um, but there's sort of that, yes, I failed, but how could I have missed so much? How could there have been so much I didn't see coming or that I didn't know was happening? Um, which I think you get a little bit with Revenge of the Sith, where he's the one who, you know, he, he states out loud, you know, Anakin's the father, isn't he? Whenever Padme is pregnant. Uh, as if, you know, she would have gotten pregnant from somewhere else. He would have, you would think that somebody earlier on would have asked the question, so who've you been shagging? Because you would figure that someone would have asked the question since they noticed she was pregnant and she wasn't apparently seeing anyone. Um, I, I don't know. It, it works well as far as giving that. At the same time, it does, it makes it harder for me as a reader to identify with that group. I'm glad there's a lot told from the Tuscan perspective, but still it is such an unusual culture and so different than most cultures that we see that I think it really took me until right up around the time that we have the big revelation of the gender of Aark for me to really start to see things from their perspective. Because throughout the book you see them the way that we stereotypically see the Tuscans. We see them as 
the violent enemy of the settlers who are there just trying to make a life. You know, it's that human-centric, I guess, perspective that we come into it with. And by the time we get near the end, we start to realize that they are as much, in many cases, a victim of what's going on, a victim of Orin and his schemes, as anyone is. Uh, and when it all does start to come to a head, it's Obi-Wan who manages to be that bridge to get the two cultures to not continue trying to wipe each other out. So it works well, but it definitely is, It's it just for some reason, that is a culture I've had the hardest time uh, getting into the heads of. You know, Twi'leks, mm. um, fine. You know, heck, Ewoks, watching the horrific <laughs> cartoon series for Republic Forces, um, fine. But for some reason, the Tuscans, their mindset is something that is just hard for me to get into for some reason. But it works well by the time we start to to realize what's really going on here. I guess it's because they don't start out feeling sympathetic. Yeah. You don't want to empathize with them. Only by the time you get to the end, you realize that you have because of the circumstances. I wonder how much of that was by design, that we were expected not to like them at the beginning and to be hostile towards their perspective somewhat at the beginning, only to have that change. Or if that's just my preconceptions walking into this, having read other stories where the Tuscans were generally just presented as the barbaric enemies. Well, the only Tuscan I've ever really cared about was Ashward Het. Um, so for me, this book drew me in. I mean, I was finally like, oh, we got we got this background history with how they look at the sons and the whole brothers and the one betra brother betrayed the other and how that kind of affects the way that they do their clan things. You know, I enjoyed it. Was it by design? I would like to think so because John Jackson Miller is one of those writers for me. I I, uh, I give him the Lucas effect. You know, he can do no wrong. <laughs> uh, I like his characterizations. I mean, there's a moment where when we first meet Yark, where he's talking about how she uh, – and again, I'm I'm adding the she here. But the character exhaled through rotting teeth, you know, little things like that. There were a lot of characters like Glomer, uh, Lily, uh, stuff like that, characters that show up in the claim, Annaline's store. Uh, they just, you know, they really had not much roles. They were just there as background characters, but we got enough about them, a little bit of their backstory to kind of make you care enough about them being there to not go, why is this person there? Um, you know, he adds a little bit of sayings and stuff. Like there's a moment where, uh, Annaline's talking to her children and they're fighting over who's going to do what. And, uh, you know, Gabe, uh, Jabe comes in. He's like, it's not fair, mom. The voice was male, young, newly deep and indignant. It's not fair. And you know it. Fair, Annalene replied, what's fair got to do with the price of water? And that cracks me up because my grandpa would use a similar phrase on me as a kid. What's what's that got to do with the price of tea in China? And I would get that all the time as a kid. Like anytime I complain about anything, what's that got to do about the price of tea in China? And I, and I did not get it for the longest time. I just I, I, I that was my grandpa's pat excuse when he wanted to just get me to stop complaining about what I was complaining. And I used to be so angry when he would use that that I didn't understand what he meant. You know, and, and as a as an adult now, I look back on that phrase. and I just absolutely love it because it's like, really? And what's that have to do with the, the subject at hand? Because as a kid, you know, you're just like the unfairness of what's going on. You, you're not looking at beyond the situation as to as the why you need to move over here versus stand where you are where that train's about to hit you you know those kind of things he's like you're just so caught up in the indignity of of how unfair it is and why that can't can't work there's another scene though uh with the jawas where the jawas show up on annaline's uh property and uh, you know one of the kids goes you're not gonna shoot him annaline said nothing instead leading her children to the side of the vehicle foul steam emanated from the behemoth's overheating engines you know the drill she said Jabe and Callie looked, or nodded. Even as the mighty ramp began to creak open, the ramp end hit the ground with a muted clang. The Callwells raised their weapons and turned them on their crowd of customers. Now hear this, Annaline said. This land is my property. If there's any trading to be done with the Jawas, I'm going to do it. If you don't want to pay my markup, you get on your dewback and head up to the Mospic Range, or wherever they're going next. I'm serious, she growled at the gathering. Anyone who even tries to buy a rivet from these guys know this. I'm not going to shoot the Jawas. Tell us what they do. They've never gone. They're never going to comprehend property lines. You, on the other hand, know very well where you are and what the rules are. So you might as well go back inside. If there's anything worth having, I'll put it on sale after we've wiped it down. And her point was made. I, I, did, I don't know. For me, these were really cool moments because it, it gave you an idea of the community. There was a lot of communityness going on here. You know, Oren's been trying to build a community around the claim. All his uh, settler fund vehicles are right there on the claim. You know, Danner and 
Danner, which is uh, Annalene's husband, by the way, uh, Danner and Oren were partners. You know, they were not just friends, but they were also business partners. And so that was kind of how the inner tying of the two families got so bad to the point where Oren was kind of like, you know, he'd come in and he'd pay for all the drinks and stuff and had a running tab. And, you know, he, him getting into the till wasn't like a major thing. Like, you know, Annalene let a lot of things slide that she probably shouldn't have because of the friendship. And that, too builds to a head at the end of the story. And I, I loved how everything just was a slow, progressive build. You know, Obi-Wan's trying to stay out of things. Every time he goes, more Sith hits the fan, you know. And and by the time we get to the end, and Oren's using those moments against Ben to make him look like a traitor, I was just like, oh my God. Like, that was the most devious, evil moment Oren Galt had was when he turned everything and everyone around on Obi-Wan. You know, he's a Tuscan sympathizer. He's a traitor in our midst. I'm just like, oh, good Lord. Get out of there, Kenobi. Run. And and the Kenobi aspect, too, of, of there were other Kenobis living on Tatooine and people were mistaking him for that family. And I, I love that, too. I mean, it was like John found ways to slide in the fact that, you know, not everybody named Kenobi is just the one family. I believe uh, Reeves might have pointed that out with... Uh, with his first character, Jax, uh, and Jax Pavan. There were so many Jax Pavans on Coruscant, you know. Those kind of things, like, you know, if you've read other EU books, you may know that, but a lot of us, the general public, we're going to be like, why is Ben Kenobi sitting on Tatooine with a Luke Skywalker, and the names Kenobi and Skywalker and Tatooine just start red flagging somewhere? You know, I mean, like, I believe there have been movies that make fun of that. <laughs> so, you know, in a, in a roundabout way, John kind of addresses that, or, or at least gives you the tools to make your own retcon. <laughs> yeah, we see him using the name Ben, and then it kind of sticks, because, of course, you know, they, they've heard all about it. He's the stranger come to town. So now everybody knows, oh, it's Ben, Ben Kenobi! So he's, you know, he's kind of stuck not being able to change and hide his last name at that point because he happened to have used it before. Um, I like the dichotomy between what he's trying to do versus what he feels uh, as a Jedi that he can do. And that is something that they play up really well, again, within those meditations. Most of the segments that include Obi-Wan aren't told from Obi-Wan's perspective. It's that uh, third-person limited style of writing. It's third person. It's not somebody speaking in first person at all. Uh, it's not saying you, so it's not second person, but it limits the knowledge in many cases beyond what the reader already knows to the knowledge of whoever it is whose particular perspective is being used for that segment. And aside from the meditations, Obi-Wan doesn't have his perspective shown quite so much. It's usually Annalene's perspective uh, or Orin's perspective, for instance. And we do get in one of those meditations uh, talking, where, where he is sort of meditating and thinking, talking, whatever you want to call it, to Qui-Gon. He says, you've heard me these last few weeks. At least I hope you have. You haven't talked to me, but I hope you've heard me. You know I'm failing again, this time at being a hermit. Obi-Wan keeps taking charge of Ben Kenobi's life. We're one and the same, of course, but the Obi-Wan part of me wants to help someone, to do something, to be a Jedi. Only then will I feel that I'm able to live in peace while others are suffering. I've had such trouble reconciling it all. How can Ben exist? if Obi-Wan won't let him. And I think that's really the key here for Obi-Wan, is that every step he takes draws him further and further into the situation, no matter how much he tries to distance himself, and he must find a way to basically do what to him is unnatural. He needs to create a hard break between him and the Caldwells, whether they like it or not, whether he likes it or not, so he can go back to being basically a hermit. Yeah, I, there's another one, too, uh, later where he's like... Uh... Will there be a galactic incident every time I really <laughs> – he's, again, he's talking to uh, Qui-Gon. Will there be a galactic incident every time I want to get out of the house? Because I could stay home in that case, really. It won't be a problem. <laughs> I just love the little banter back and forth there. And I, again, I could just totally see Obi-Wan. There's a moment in the beginning of Chapter 15 where Ben's cooking for Annalene. He goes – or uh, she starts out, well, we've determined one thing, Ben. Whatever job you had before you came here, you weren't a cook, but you tried. I didn't try. I did, he said, grinning as he took the dishes. It's just that, it's just what I did wasn't very good. I have a friend who's quite militant on the subject of trying. He looked at the remnants on her plate with remorse. I could have sworn I remembered how to prepare grotto egg omelets. <laughs> just, I love the fact, like, the Yoda references, like, 
you know, we know who he's talking about, but it's completely wide open. You know, I've just got a friend who's very militant on the subject of trying. I'm like, yes, I thought that was so funny. And there's all these little moments between Obi-Wan and Annalene like that. Uh, Kate, Callie, Kaylee, however you want to say her name, Annalene's daughter is very smitten with Obi-Wan. I mean, there's no hiding it all the way through it. Uh, and that's when we learn that most of his meditations with Qui-Gon were out loud. Oh, Qui-Gon, hey, uh, I know you're not here, but I'm uh, sitting in this room all alone on this desert planet out here by myself, the last hope of the Jedi. I'm kind of, you know, watching the other hope that we're hoping is going to grow into a better hope. Uh, so, you know, to keep myself sane, I'm just going to talk out loud. And, hey, if you're here, you know, talk back. But meanwhile, Kaylee, infatuated as she is, has followed Obi-Wan out there because at this point in the story, Annalene ended up going out there with him. That was, uh, they had the little meal and all that stuff. And then Annalene went home. Obi-Wan stayed behind and did his little meditation, not realizing that Callie was there. She was creeping up on him, hiding outside and eavesdropping. So when she gets back into town, you know, she's still infatuated with Kenobi. So she's telling everybody about what he's been doing. And of course, now crazy Ben Kenobi kind of hits Tatooine. You know, the claim now knows about the crazy old hermit because he's out there talking to himself. And so that plays into the old crazy old hermit aspect of things, you know, and from someone who's grown up in a small town, you know, the, the aspect of you, there's no secrets in a small town is very true, uh, especially when you've got big families. And in this case, you know, with the Galts and the, and the Caldwells and, and their roles in, in the situation of Tatooine, they are pretty much what you would call the big shots of the claim. So, if anything's going to happen in their vicinity, they're going to know about it. And so I like the way that that plays up, you know, and then after that, you know, Ben, when he talks to Qui-Gon, he's doing it all in his mind. He's like, so I'm not going to be talking outside of my voice from here on out. You know, we're going to do it all in my head. And so you have that progression of how the meditations go as well. It, it was classic. And, you know, if you're waiting for Qui-Gon to reply back, go grab the life and times of Obi-Wan Kenobi because it doesn't happen in this one. I will say, at least as far as the amusing bits, you know, where we've got uh, Obi-Wan's past kind of haunting him and informing his views, I have to say that it's amusing that Annalene is nicknamed Annie. Just like, of course, Anakin was nicknamed, at least by Padme, Annie. So you've got that level of, you know, no matter where Obi-Wan goes, he's still dealing with this, and surely that name must have caused him some level of if not grief, then at least it kept bringing things to mind that maybe he would rather not think about at the time. And I liked how that was tied in, too. I mean, anytime her name was used as Annie, he got silent, kind of remorseful, kind of closed off. And she kept telling him, just call me Annie. And he never called her Annie. I don't think he one time called her Annie. Not that I recall, not that I recall. He, he has his own little orphan Annie that he was worried about. Um, but from the standpoint <laughs> of this story and where it goes... I guess we can't leave off without talking about what the crux of the whole issue has been. And that is that Orin, needing cash and whatnot, has basically set up a scheme. And he and others will dress up like Tusken Raiders and go attack other farms that aren't part of the collective. And, the holdouts. Yeah, the holdouts. And in doing so, that drives the need for more people to join the Settlers' Call, for more people to provide money. But also, it leads to the settlers going and attacking the Tuscans. And in a sense, uh, with all of this that's going on, it's hard to tell how much of the fault of all of this was an actual Tuscan attack, or several Tuscan attacks that led to further fighting, or if that's more something that was all in the past because the Tuscans are so weak now, and it's really just been Orin and his machinations that have caused this conflict. The Tuscans are more, I don't want to say they're completely victims, here, but they're certainly more victim than they seem to be perpetrator in this case, and it nearly leads to their downfall, and it finally leads to a major confrontation in which it winds up with Obi-Wan on the side of the Tuscans, in a sense, trying to act as an advocate for them, but also for the settlers, and Orin and anyone who is blindly following his lead being the true villains of the story. For most of the book, it's hard to tell where is the villain going to come from, and you're really kind of hoping it's not the Tuscans. Because it's so obvious, and because the Tuscans are just kind of the savage characters that we've come to think of them as until we get more depth with them later in this book. Um, by the time we get to the point that we see what's really behind all of this, we can empathize enough with the Tuscans to consider them victims, and Orin has graded on us just enough slowly over time as he's become more erratic 
for us to think of him as the villain of the piece. I would imagine going back and reading this a second time would certainly cause someone to feel different about that character. Again, it's very much the who is Orin Galt versus the who is John Galt type of thing. Go back and reread Atlas Shrugged after having realized who John Galt really is and having read the book for the first time. Um, it's going to have a different feel to you as you read it. Same thing here once you know the truth about Orin Galt. Yeah, the Tuscans, I would say they were victims of tradition. You know, when they got attacked, they had to respond in kind. It was tied into their belief of the sons being the two brothers and that the one tried to betray the other and it failed and therefore spent the rest of its eternity running from the other son as it was trying to get revenge. And I like the way that that played out, the back and forth. Uh, you know, when, when the Tuscans got attacked, you know, they mounted up and they went straight for it. There is the moment when the Tuscans attacked the claim. Where, you know, it, it's the Boon to Eve classic is happening. And, and we find out that this is the anniversary when uh, Ganner, Annaline, Ganner, uh, Danner, Annaline's uh, husband, he ended up dying in a Tuscan raid himself while going back and forth from, you know, that Boon to Eve classic. The part that struck me, though, was it was her biggest night of profits. Uh, you know, her her business was down low. She'd invited Kenobi into the claim because it was a day when everybody was going to be gone. So they kind of like have like this little date going on in her mind, even though Kenobi doesn't see it that way. But that's what it was. Kenobi, you know, you have no luck with women. So we understand why you didn't get that. But, you know, they're having their thing and everything's going all fine and good. And one of the bar patrons comes out of the bar and like falls over with a with a. Uh, gatter fee, got gatter stick, or whatever they called it. I believe John even retconned why we had two names for the gatter fee uh, in this book. That the Tuscans called it by one name, and that the settlers called it by another. Yeah, because because they couldn't pronounce it right, so they just called it the gappy stick. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, yeah, I was, I did too. I was like, okay, but there's a scene where one of the bar patrons comes stumbling up, and he's like one of the local drunks, and he's standing at the door and falls over with a classic guts the knife in his back scene, and the Tuscan's standing behind him. And that was like the oh snap, here it comes, and you know you're waiting for Kenobi to do his thing, and and uh, the other holdout like Kenobi goes into the bar and takes out all the Tuscans, but he blames it on the drunk old dude in there, and so the whole dude's like, I don't need your settlers' call. I took out 45 Tuscans with my rifle. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, way to go. So there's another reason for Oren to be more kind of mad with Kenobi, even though it's not actually Kenobi, but he's more mad at the situation, you know, and you're just like, wow, this is really kind of building up into something, isn't it? You know, and, and then when they have that moment of, of retaliation for the strike on the claim, because now Annalene's lost a lot of money because what she would have been just ranking in off of drink money when everyone came in, they now have this big battle that's going on and all that. So she doesn't make as much money. So it was a big hit on the, you know, the storefront. Like she could make up almost a whole year's worth of profits on that one night kind of thing. So it was like, it was a big hit. You know, I kept thinking about that. Like, Ooh, that's really going to hit the business. And by the time the story gets to its end, you can kind of understand why that hit kind of played into the ease of Annalene's choice. You know, she, she gets faced with a choice towards the end. And, and to me, it made it kind of a no brainer. Uh, but they end up taking and, and, and pinning all the Tuscans in, in this Valley and they're just decimating them all. And, it, and this is the moment where, uh, Ayark's son gets killed. And I believe Kenobi's fighting with him in one of the, uh, the other settlers shoots the kid in the back while he's fighting Kenobi. But Kenobi ends up taking the body and offering it back to a yark, knowing because at this point, Annaline points out that a yark's the mother. And so he drops, you know, the, the, the body off and says, you know, we're not going to desecrate your dead. We're, you know, we're going to honor this. And, and that was that moment. That was the olive branch for me, you know? And, and, and I think that that worked for Oren, you know, is to be able to say, Hey, Kenobi's in cahoots with him because he had that aspect. Everybody's like, what is he doing? You know, but to me, that was when everything kind of really started building up with the, the, the tension between the two groups. You start now to see Oren's becoming kind of a, a jerk. Uh, he's got two plans that you start to discover at this point. You're not quite sure what the second one is. You kind of have an idea of the first one because he's already met with the huts and all that kind of stuff. You're like, wait, what in the heck is really going on here? You know, uh, I, I just I like the the buildup, the progression, and that is something John Jackson Miller has always been good at. You know, he's he's always got this plan. It seems that he knows where he wants to end up, and knowing that he's been seeding the yellow brick road all throughout the story on your trip through. And you know, you're in the middle of the woods, and you look down, and you see a gold brick, and you don't think anything of it. Next thing you know, you're over here, and you see another gold brick. But what you don't realize is that underneath all the forest layer and stuff is a, is the gold road that John set up for you. And that you're you're still on the path. Those little gold bricks are 
are taking you to your big payoff. And I, I don't know, by the time we get to the end of it and they're all routed up and they're all up at the, uh, the well or whatever it was up at the top of the Judlin and stuff. And, you know, Oren at this point, he he's trapped with Kenobi. The crate dragon shows up. Kenobi busts out the lightsaber. Oren figures out what Kenobi is. But by the time it's all said and done, Oren ends up getting his legs smashed and is crippled and gets left behind. Uh, that moment, his fate, where the Tuscans, they've, they've stolen evaporator from another moisture farmer and they decide, you know what? We need you. You're our next Tuscan. And they put him in the wraps. He wakes up in the wraps and he's all uh, entombed in the sand, people saying, and he can't hardly talk. And they want him to be the moisture farmer for their tribe. Oh my God, man, that moment was just so, I, I can't even put in words how I felt. Like one hand, I'm fist pumping, and the other one, I'm like putting my hand in my mouth going, oh my God, is this really happening? I mean, because, you know, now there's this guy that knows about Kenobi that could potentially cause him problems down the road, but he is left in such a position that you're like, this guy is dead. There's no way he's going to get out of this position he's in. I I, I, I don't know. I, I felt it was like a very fitting end for the character and yet at the same time it had a, a level of irony that was just beautiful yeah the whole setup works out very very well by the time we get to the end i think this is one of those books it's about 400 pages long it's one of those that you may not quite know where it's going to begin with by the time you get to the end it all you know the, the plan has been there it all makes sense and you've had a very satisfying experience with it but I think there may be those Star Wars fans who are looking for something more of the flashbang, you know, space combat type stuff. The, they're looking for more of an X-Wing type of experience or a Legacy of the Force type of experience. This is not that. This is a much more subtle experience, a much more character-driven experience. And if you go into it that mindset, I think you're really going to enjoy it. But just because it says Kenobi doesn't mean Super Jedi action. I mean, just looking at the cover and reading what it says on the back of the dust jacket where it says... The Republic has fallen, Sith Lords rule the galaxy, Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi has lost everything, everything but hope, and that's above his hut. I think just by seeing that and getting a sense of it, maybe even reading the inside uh, dust cover, dust jacket flap, should give you a sense that that's not the type of story this is. This is a much more interpersonal thing, a much smaller conflict type of situation, but one that is, uh, like many of the best Star Wars stories, is a character-driven piece, not an event-driven piece. Yeah, and, then I, and there was also a couple moments like uh, when Ayark says Ben's name, like you know, you get those moments where you hear the movies come up, and I, I, I swear when she said Ben, I heard the Tuscan Raider like, but it was like, just laughing so hard. My wife's like, what? I'm like, I just, I had a moment of audio bliss in my mind. Yeah, all the the Tuscan Raiders are either very primitive in their war calls, or they're all really, really big fans of Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> oh that's just perfect right there that about wraps up this episode of star wars beyond the films oh <laughs> that was a good one man you got me dying now uh thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing in the fandom remember you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the star wars report website www.starwarsreport.com Episodes are also available on iTunes and can be found on our own Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Or you just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. If you have any Star Wars and or EU questions or you just have a comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, remember, before we go, our sponsored trial we got here with Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you can get a free audiobook with a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles that you can explore. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So... In this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. And of course, be sure to check out that Amazon.com shop that my wife and I run, Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. Um, uh, no joke, any little bit certainly helps because, boy, we're getting pounded right now. Got a lot of cool stuff up there at the moment with uh, more stuff 
coming in the near future. Probably some of the old J. Michael Straczynski Rising Stars stuff being the next stuff that'll wind up going on there. And you can even help support us directly. If you go to www.starwarsreport.com support, you can learn more. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nate. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. That Obi-Wan will dream about Annie and wake up not being sure which Annie he was dreaming about. Or that Obi-Wan Kenobi has seen his last adventure. Maybe he'll leave Tatooine one more time. Can you imagine that? Obi-Wan has like a, 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 a hot and heavy dream about Annalene and is thinking, oh, Annie. And then he finally hears Qui-Gon's voice saying, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Anakin, no! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, no. oh, I was thinking, like, you know, they, they could do it. Obi-Wan can be the uh, next big three moment where, you know, has he gone to the refresher yet? Is, is this his last adventure? No, this is. Or that was. Now this is. And then that was. Now this is. We promise you this will be his last adventure after the next one we put out. Yeah.